The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. I've been thinking a lot about systems, about the systems and structures and worldviews that dominate the world in which we live, about how the ways in which we do things are the results of these systems and how those systems are overwhelmingly grounded in fundamentally harmful narratives about others and how we should treat them. I recently read a book called Sand Talk, written by today's guest, Tyson Yunkaporter. On this podcast, we often explore how our adherence, whether it's conscious or unconscious, to these systems can result in harm, particularly through the practice of doing good. Reading Tyson's book made me reflect on the systems within the aid, development, philanthropic and non-profit sectors, which perpetuate a cycle of top-down, imposed helping of people and environments. It made me wonder where we were going in this circular kind of system of of helping and evaluating and doing better and then coming back and doing it again and again and again in what is essentially a broken system. To help me make much more sense of this, I asked Tyson to come on the podcast today. Tyson's an academic, an art critic and a researcher He's also a member of the Appalach clan in far north Queensland and has community and cultural ties all over the country. He carves traditional tools and weapons and also works as a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledges at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. He's the author of Sand Talk, a phenomenal book and one that I highly recommend to anybody listening. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Tyson. Hey, how you doing? I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Yeah, doing good, you know, I think it's it's inhibited by um, sort of recent cultural values of good and evil, that sort of positivist framework of that kind of realism of, you know, there is an objective, empirical good and bad that can be applied without context to any context in any person in any situation except the rich (laughs) who are allowed to do whatever they want that's currently where it's sort of sitting and you know it it probably could do with a a bit of a yarn and at least one one podcast dedicated to it yeah awesome awesome you know i've read your book and i have to say it's amazing and you know really challenged a whole lot of things for me around the way you know, my, my own worldview 
and also the way I work and the systems within which I work, um, primarily in the in the not for profit sector or in the development sector. Ah, yeah. Internationally, particularly, and so it really challenged a lot a lot of of those narratives for me. So you're in the um, the non profit um, industrial complex. Exactly, exactly, and you know I would say trying to really through this podcast trying to challenge the white savior white privilege complex industrial complex within that by having these kind of conversations and and trying to get people to look at the systems within which they operate but also to share their failures to try to do better at this idea of helping well it could yeah it could do with some thought experiments you know so if you've got a, a, a mass murderer who is helping an old lady across the road in order to give himself a kind of character alibi, he's doing good, right? Yeah, in that moment, at that time. But does that inherently make him a good person? Yeah, and what if his intent is not good? It, yeah, yeah. Or what still, if it is in that moment? Good, good for that old lady. She might have got hit by a truck. Yeah, but in that moment, he's really just thinking about um, airbrushing his his uh, reputation in the community to cast suspicion elsewhere. Yeah, so there's a little thought experiment for you. What, what is good? It would be bad to, like, you know, run someone down in the street and, 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 and belt them over the head and tie their hands behind their back. That would be a bad thing. But if you were actually catching that murderer, <laughs> you know, that serial killer, and you were chasing him down the street because he was trying to get away and he was going to jump on a plane and take off and be lost forever, then would that be doing good? That'd be all right. The ethical conundrum. (laughs) It makes me think of, you know, this kind of the altruism, egoism kind of uh, spectrum where some people would say or some scientists would say that we exist on a a spectrum in terms of our our do-gooding and at one end is pure or true altruism which I'm pretty dubious about and the other end is you know egoism where it's 100% narcissistic doing it completely for myself and most people I would say would probably fall somewhere in the in the middle there but acknowledging that we get something out of doing good is challenging to some people Um, especially when I don't know there's different ideas of who that we is you know so who is the we that is getting something out of that I said in another interview the other day someone was asking me about empathy and I said ah you know empathy is like training wheels for somebody who doesn't know how to relate yet you know because if you're existing in profound relation with each other then it's a different kind of we that we're talking about if you're existing in very intensely interdependent and interconnected ways, there's no sort of separation of doing good for others you know, as a kind of indirect good for yourself. It's directly benefits uh, you immediately. There's no delayed gratification of maybe building up social credits or something that you can cash in down the track as tokens, you know, that reciprocal al- altruism. You know, a lot of people have described our cultures as being based on reciprocal altruism, but I believe it's more than that because reciprocal altruism would have to exist between two entities that were still profoundly separated from each other, where there would have to be a sort of a feeling of some kind of mechanism of trust to ensure that there was a return on the good that was being done at some future point. Whereas 
in reality, there's no delayed gratification culturally for us in doing good for us because it's for us. It's a very different way of looking at it. So, Tyson, would you say that for you, doing good is something that is intrinsically just part of every action every day? Or is it something that you can say, okay, I I go off and I do this good thing over here and I've kind of ticked a box? Well, I mean, is, is what you're doing happening within a custodial framework to ensure the longevity of your culture, your community, your family, your land base in perpetuity? Is what you're doing in service of that? That might involve beating someone black and blue, you know, in a certain context, that custodial relation. Would that be something that is good? <laughs> but then, you know, I, I guess if, like I always look for answers in language, so like min and why, or like, you know, look at good and bad and the way that's used in, in our Aboriginal languages. So, you know, good water would be water that sustains life. Bad water would be, um, oh, literally, nakwai, bad water. Um, that's the word that we give for um, alcohol. So alcohol would be classified as bad, I suppose, because it doesn't, um, I mean, it doesn't hydrate you, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, and it does poison you. So I guess that would be bad. Um, so I guess things that um, damage systems would be bad. So, but what if you were punishing somebody? somebody, a wrongdoer who is doing damage within your system and that your, your cultural way of doing a punishment was something that was supposed to be transformative for that person, for the wrongdoer, you know, to actually grow them out of that and enable them. You know, the idea is that in our cultures, it, it, as soon as you're punished, that's it, the crimes. It's like it never happened. It's finished. You don't carry around a criminal record. So you might have this horrible ordeal you know which as a community you're putting somebody or a group of people through as a transformative punishment but it's not just them that's transforming it's you as well you know collectively who are administering that punishment you know so you all go through this transformation together and it enhances group cohesion and then brings those wrongdoers back into the group and they're kind of respected and, and admired for enduring that ordeal violence is bad Yeah, all right. But in this case, that violence would actually be a good thing. The intent of that violence is is obviously restorative to restore the the equilibrium and the, the space and places we occupy in communities. Does it necessarily, or in your experience, does it stop that person doing something against laws again? It does if it's situated in traditional law, as least colonized as possible context. But if you throw in, if there's that wakwai that's involved as well, you know, if there's alcohol there, if there's, um, if that violence isn't being done properly and, and people might be calling out that they're doing a proper payback or something, but they're doing it sneakily instead of open, public and transparent, because all these things are supposed to be transparent. So if, if it ends up becoming twisted, and it can, or if there are people participating who they themselves are twisted, you know, by the more narcissistic um, side of things, which I think would be the only thing that I would call truly evil or bad would be that narcissism, you know, based on that idea, I am greater than. You've got people suffering from that delusion, then, yeah, things can get twisted. 
And then people can use that situation to blow things up out of proportion and then suddenly you have a riot or suddenly you have a, you know, um, a big family feud or a, a massive series of running street battles that just, you know, don't go away in a hurry and do lots of damage. Your book, Sand Talk, was incredible, as I just said before. And as I was reading it, my mind was really reeling with the possibilities of the ideas that you're putting forward and how they could be applied, but also feeling pretty dejected at the state of the world that we live in. And I know it only came out last year, but we're living in a profoundly different world now than we did last year. And it seems that a pretty radical change in in our systems is required and even more urgent. What are you kind of reflecting on in that space, given what's going on? Look, I I think that everybody across every culture probably has the same definition of what good is. But where we have differences is in what we categorise into those categories of good and bad. So basically, you have a lot of people in the world doing good right now. And in doing so, they're doing a lot of damage. So some people are making America great again. And that's good, right? I mean, inarguably, that's a good idea to do good. And they're, and they're trying to, they're really doing everything they can to be good people. And then you have uh, a lot of other people who are um, looking to reform the society in other ways to make it good. You know, and their idea of good is fairness and justice and all that sort of thing. But the problem is that the social system that we're living in, the economic system particularly, is not good. And everybody agrees on that. But unfortunately, on the social justice side of things, people think that this intensely evil pyramid scheme sort of culture, economic system, etc., can be tweaked somehow to make it more fair. But it's like putting a saddle on a cow. It would be nice to turn your dog into a vegetarian, but that dog's going to die, you know. It's the same way this economic system, you know, is a dog with rabies. It's, it is going to die anyway, <laughs> but it's not going to want to eat a carrot. It's going to want to eat your arm. It is, it's not a system that you could just sort of train to be otherwise. We can't just elevate a few more people from this group and this group into the corridors of power and go, look, there, it's all fair now. And we couldn't just sort of redistribute things a bit more fairly, not within this system, because the entire thing will collapse. And I guess I've been saying this often lately, but inclusivity, arguably a good thing, is one of the signs of the end times of any civilization. If you look at any civilization in history, always towards the end, as it's falling apart, they start to include their marginalized peoples, their conquered peoples, vassals. They start to include these ones in higher and higher positions in the society and try to make things a bit fairer for them. That always happens towards the end. When it doesn't matter anymore, when they know it's falling apart anyway. But they also, you know, kind of hoping, you know, I guess trying to hope that they can absolve themselves of their sins and uh, I guess they're hoping that maybe this will be the thing that will settle people down and, and help the civilization continue for a little bit longer. Because usually at this stage, you end up with massive uh, acts of group violence uh, going on, lots of people rising up, lots of different groups coming together with common grievances 
you know, you look at the slave revolt in, in Rome that, that brought it to its knees, that uh, sort of was a, a flashpoint that catalyzed around one person, around one man's experience of um, inequality and injustice. And that person was enough of a symbol to kick off all those revolts. What we've got in the world right now is the art of the deal is the new culture at the moment. Have you ever read that, Trump's book? No, I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Nobody has to read it because we've all been workshopped and inducted into it, okay, because we are all doing it. And I warned people in my book last year, you know, never wrestle a pig because you both get covered in shit and the pig likes it. Everybody wrestled the pig. (laughs) So now we're all doing the art of the deal. And one of the main things that Trump gets across is his big formula, winning formula for success in the art of the deal is to make crazy, insane, impossible demands and to make them with excessive outlandish insults and threats and just act insane and keep that going for as long as possible. And then right at the end, offer the same thing that you wanted in the first place. Like what you really wanted, offer that towards the end. Everyone will be so relieved they'll accept it. I'm going to ask you to explain the story of Emu as you outline it in your book. I was trying to explain it to my children when I was reading it. And they actually both came up with the question, is Donald Trump an emu? With no direct connection in that conversation, that was just their interpretation of of the emu story, which I found fascinating. Yeah, definitely. I should say that emus are wonderful creatures and that's not the only story about emu, you know. Emus, for a start, are very good fathers. You know, the mother lays the chicks but then she takes off. None of them ever see him again. It's the father who sits on the eggs. It's the father who hatches the eggs and raises all the chicks to adulthood. So they're, they're also, yeah, pretty, pretty lovely, amazing animals and lovely stories, totemic beings. But it was just at, back at the dawn of creation, often in our stories all over Australia, you'll find that emu is the one who was responsible for that originating evil thought, that badness, um, that uh, narcissistic idea of I am greater than. So I am greater than you. I am greater than this land. So you exist. This land exists uh, to serve me and to fulfill my needs. You can go in any of the world's traditions, any tradition from around the world, except for the art of the deal uh, tradition that we're living in now. You could go to any of the world's traditions and they'll all say the same thing. When it boils down to it, that's the source of all human misery, is that idea of putting yourself above others. I mean, we, we do not like hierarchies. At no point in history, as, I mean, modern history and even what they're calling ancient history is, is basically all recorded history is a series of struggles of human beings trying to throw off t- tyranny, trying to reject somebody bossing them. That's what history means. That's why it's his story, because it came out of that, that first division of, um, you know, around 12,000 years ago of, um, you know, one gender deciding they were the boss of the other gender. As I read your book, it seems to me that all of the dominant systems and and resulting worldviews that we have are inherently kind of built on this idea of I'm greater than and you are less and the struggle between that. And 
especially looking at it through the lens of doing good or helping others, we see those like colonial hierarchical systems that are kind of imposing solutions and people are motivated to help due to that subconscious idea that they might be conscious in some cases, but they're greater or more privileged or more educated than those that they're trying to help. That is true. <laughs> As you were talking, it just brought my mind back to that initial thought experiment we proposed of the um, serial killer helping the old lady across the road. I don't know. So that good act, do we partner with that serial killer and um, as he helps put us put together a program to make sure all the old ladies in the city are helped across the road um, so that he's able to continue his predations elsewhere uh, without being interfered with. <laughs> are we doing good in that? Is that doing good? And this, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I'm not judging anybody who's doing that. I've consulted for a company that does that. It, it targets some um, big corporations that get in trouble and are in danger of being canceled <laughs> on Twitter. And they basically approach them and say, look, we'll, um, you know, if you throw a couple of million at us, we'll do a couple of programs that will have maximum impact and do really good things in the world. And, you know, you can put that on the front of all your, uh, your shareholder pamphlets. And so they're actually able to leverage a lot of money to be able to do great things. So one of the problems they, they came, was, uh, I can't remember, I think that the company had sort of enslaved and killed a bunch of people inadvertently, making shoes or whatever it was they were doing. So they decided, well, we want to do something about malaria in this African country here. You know, so what do we do? And I guess... I think this is where good is done. Good is in finding the patterns of things that work and the kinds of complex thinking and solutions that are needed that sort of go beyond, they spread ripples out. Because this is a ripple of an idea. So if you wanted to um, end the malaria that's caused by the mosquitoes, what's the immediate solution you know, from this culture of reductionism and everything else that we're in? It's like, well, we need to kill the mosquitoes. You know, so, of course, we spray and the mosquitoes die, but then the frogs die too. And then we find a whole heap of other stuff dies. <laughs> yeah. And then the humans die from inhaling the, the smoke, exactly. the gas. But I was, yeah. I was consulting with this company and the most beautiful, elegant solution um, they came up with in the end was um, the, the way to stop malaria in this community is by uh, repairing the river. Because the river had been dammed upstream and it, and it was full of rubbish and it was full of blockages. So they got rid of the dam and they cleared away all the blockages throughout the river so that it was flowing again. And when it was flowing and clear, mosquito problem was gone. And then a lot of the eco ecology came back and they found that a lot of other diseases disappeared as well. Dysentery, typhoid, all these things. Does it matter what the motivation for the good is? If, if the outcome as you said, was, you know, this whole approach of improving the health of the river and the ecology and the flow on effects of that. Does it matter that the company that did that did it to greenwash, did it to improve their productivity because that less malaria means less sick stuff, which means, you know, does it matter? I, I guess we, we would have to hold them to their own standards there and to their own measures. Now, one of their big things, so when they're looking at their financial balance, not just their social benefit balance and ecological benefit balance, they would be doing a um, cost-benefit analysis, right? 
if you're saving one community from malaria, but then destroying the entire community of Flint by poisoning the water, is it still good that you've done it? Do you know what I mean? So if you've saved, um, you know, 5,000 people over here from dying of malaria, but then you've killed 500,000 over here to save a bit of money, was it still good what you did over here, especially when you used that little bit of good to cover up this big bit of bad? When I was reading the book, I was thinking, I, I mean, I work in the the corporate social responsibility, shared value space as well. And, and you know, it got me thinking of that work and, and thinking about, you know, whether sustainability, as you describe it in Sound Talk, is even possible at all or useful in that space to talk about. I don't think we need to be, you know, looking inwards and self-examining about, oh, am I working in the right industry? There, there is no industry that doesn't have blood on its hands. If you want to eat and have a roof over your head and not die on the side of the road in the rain, you, you have to work for somebody evil. That's pretty much what it is. So just, like, let yourself off the hook a bit and you can just do the best that you can. I don't know, if you keep your eyes looking upward and looking at the entire system rather than just on your own little little piece, then it prevents you from joining in with this thing of, of looking sideways and doing lateral violence to all of the other people around you, doing purity testing, you know, to find out if they're thinking any evil, non-green thoughts or non-PC thoughts or something like that, and then punishing them and then cancelling them and then punish where we're doing a lot of navel-gazing and looking inwards to find our sin at the moment, and then we're looking out around to our friends and family and community to find the sin in them as well. It's very puritanical. It's very much just following a religious tradition of control. When the power starts to slip with the powerful, you always find a tightening. You find a new religion emerging and this tightening of social control through people's self-policing and being encouraged to look inwards for their sin and look left and right for their sin to their friends and family around them. Individuals and communities then become self-policing and you don't have to do a damn thing. I had a conversation, actually recorded a podcast with um, Clementine Ford earlier, and we were talking about exactly this, about the notion of Karens, Karens in the world, and the idea of one woman calling out another one for something that, she may have very well done herself if she was placed in that same position without even knowing why. That really speaks to what you just said. It's we are in a, in a space where calling out another person allows us to feel better about ourselves rather than actually go, hang on, where am I doing this as well? And would I have? Well, I mean, you look at the history of the civil rights movement to date, always very reasonable demands. <laughs> Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he um, has some pretty reasonable demands. It's just like civil rights, just be civil. You know what I mean? That's not a big demand. But he didn't understand the art of the deal. And he didn't understand the society and the system he was operating in. He thought he was dealing with people. And so he was being reasonable. And so, but of course, the system, like, you know, threw everything they had at it you know, denied it and died it. Of course they were going to acquiesce and go, yeah, you can have some civil rights. You know, of course they were going to do that. It's the same here. Of course, like gay people were going to be able to get married. Nobody cares. You know, yeah, of course you're going to be able to get married. But, you know, what we're going to do is like, we're all going to spend a year debating that. 
while these countries over here are being invaded in Africa. Oh, did you know there's wars going on? Like America's waging like 12 wars right now. Does anyone know about it? No, but I'm really happy that, you know, Jeffrey and Peter can get married now. Or I'm really upset that they can get married now. And then we're going to keep that debate going. Oh, we're going to come. Rah, rah, rah. You know, there was a point, though, that Martin Luther King did understand the art of the deal. And that was when he said, oh, my God, what have I done? And that was when he said, yeah, no, this society cannot be fixed. This society has to come down. And we're all in the same boat together. You know, all you poor people. You know, all you immigrants, most of the white population, we're all laboring under this same system and we need to unite now and come together to <laughs> finish dead. You know, he was assassinated within a week of saying that, within a week of repudiating his I have a dream speech. He said, I have a dream is bullshit. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, it's a funny old thing. Like I said, social justice for this society here would be like putting a saddle on a cow. It makes me think about problem solving and, and, you know, all these people everywhere trying to do good, trying to solve complex social challenges. But your book talks about doing it within a broken system. And it, and it makes me think of, you know, a good example is all of the problems that colonialism caused all over the world, but I'll use, I'll use the African continent as an example where we see, you know, a narrative of conflict and, and poverty and illness and things like that coming out that is a result of this colonial intervention. And yet we see another colonial system, you know, the United Nations, the aid and development sector itself coming in to try to fix it in this kind of circular way and recreating the same problems over and over again. And it makes me kind of go, well, okay, the system is broken, obviously. So many systems that we exist within are broken. How do we start dismantling? Every system enjoys periods of homeostasis or stability and then hysteresis, you know, which is great disruption. And the system that emerges after hysteresis is never same as the one that went in. And as human beings, we're just absolutely uniquely adapted to surviving and thriving through periods of hysteresis. You know, we're very good at it. We adapt to our habitat so marvelously. And we can do it in real time, you know. We don't have to wait for selection and mutations and things like that. We can consciously mutate, you know, our behaviours, if nothing else. And we can move with the land before the land moves us. But we adapt and we respond to whatever we need to do, you know, in order to thrive and survive in these things. And it is really what we're doing, you know, right now. A lot of us would feel like, oh, but I'm not doing anything. I need to get out and be the change I want to see in the world. You know, it's like, just relax for me. You're just doing what you need to do for now. You know, for me, I've spent a lifetime um, working in and benefiting from an industry that, that destroys the minds of young people. And, you know, I've, I've built an entire career out of destroying people's minds. It's not something I'm proud of, but it's just what I had to do if I want to keep feeding my children and, um, you know, making sure that my extended family, which is like 50 people, have got enough to eat. Having enough 
you know, to be able to respond to crises there. Like, um, you know, so my family had to be evacuated from the community, you know, just a few months back to be evacuated and they were taken out by the military and, you know, either dumped in a small town or left on the beach and, and they were there for weeks. And so, you know, I had to be able to do, like I'm in Melbourne trying to do all the logistics of making sure everybody's fed and transported in situations where every bit of accommodation and transport is completely full and, you know, people don't have enough money to buy food and all that sort of thing, you know. You need to be able to respond to these things. So you just do what you can and you do what you must. But what you always do is, is you keep the stories. You keep the stories of what, have, what has happened. Therefore, the ones who are coming after as much as for you now, because you need to make meaning of what's happening in the moment. Because trauma, that's all trauma is. Trauma is failure to make meaning from change. You know, if you don't make meaning, then you're traumatized. So you need those stories and we need to tell them together and we need to, you know, come to a broad consensus about what it is that's going on in our little groups and then share with other groups these things and then listen to everybody and talk together because that's how, you know, with these larger minds, these aggregate minds, that's how we can find solutions to get through. That's how we can allow the new system to emerge. So there's a, you, you'll see there's a, there's a lot of organizations now that are going, no, next system now. I think there's even one that's even called that, dedicated to creating the next economic system now. And there's some really good work being done in that sphere. So a lot of people are um, pushing for big changes like um, a debt jubilee and things like that. And that's really exciting. You know, these are, you know, exciting interventions to do. And, yeah, they might be able to extend the life of the civilization for a little bit more in the same way that oil and gas did recently. And who knows the 10-year depression that we're um, about to enter by the end of this year. You know, who knows? Maybe the, the next thing will come through. Maybe there'll be a debt jubilee. Yeah, but I think if that happens, there'll be a, a massive economic contraction anyway because most of the money in the world is debt. That would be an interesting time. And not a real tangible thing that we can hold and see. And yeah. well, What needs to happen is this... Um, a lot of people talk about what, what's needed is a reimagining of value, of what value is. And that's true, but I, I, that just sounds like too much conscious intervention and tinkering for my liking. I like the idea of, of emergence because that's how dynamic self-organizing systems happen. There is emergence. That's how creation happens. So in complexity sciences, the idea of emergence is worth looking at. As custodians of this reality, we can help foster the conditions for emergence as long as we're not getting carried away with our own self-importance about our big ideas and our tinkerings and that I know what's needed. I can do some good. I will do this intervention here. And they say, oh, why are those people dying over there? I don't know. That's got nothing to do with me. I didn't do that. Um, you know, anything you move over here is going to do something terrible over there. We need to create the conditions for emergence because emergence is neither good nor bad, it just is. It doesn't fit very well into the current frameworks around how we do helping or how we do good. I mean, in the book and, and just now you've talked about this kind of non-Indigenous problem-solving process and how usually a person or a group of people or an organisation will come into a community with a plan for change and you describe this process 
of it inevitably failing. Yeah. So then they move on to this reflection stage and they're like, okay, we need to evaluate and measure our outcomes and make sure that we understand what went wrong. Mm. And then after that, they realize that where they went wrong, as you say, is failing to build relationships. So then they connect. And then ideally through that final step is respect. But you know, that resonated hugely for me coming from a background in the international development sector where I have, like, I can't tell you how many evaluations of projects I've done for big organizations like the UN, but also small grassroots organizations. And it works exactly from that framework. It's, it's standardized practice. But in my experience, sadly, many organizations or projects never, ever get to that final step. It, it kind of seems that they get to the end of step two, the evaluation, and then they reflect and circle back to step one to try again. Because they're not just waiting for the annual, you know, evaluation that might leave some room, but they have to do quarterly reporting against KPIs. You know, I mean, the poor, but it's not like, oh, just white people have got no respect. Nah, it's like, no. (laughs) This white person's got eight weeks to perform against these KPIs or to produce some evidence of how it's not his fault, it's the community's fault. That's all you're going to get. And it's funny, it's designed to fail like that. It is. And I know it is because whenever I see something that's actually working, that's actually working, there's one of two things happen. It's immediately defunded or if it's a... a, um, one of the, these very rare things, just a grassroots happening, an emergence that has no funding. It's just people coalescing around a basin of attraction and something amazing starts to happen. Government or nonprofits or whatever immediately come in and want to chuck money at that. I want to be able to show the people who, you know, are giving me millions of dollars in that marketplace of, of benevolence. I want to be able to show them the amazing things that we're aligned with. So I'm going to align myself with this, you know, incredible movement that's just producing all the outcomes everyone's ever dreamed of in this community. Yep, we're going to offer you all this money, but you're going to need to uh, adhere to these KPIs. Oh, and by the way, we're going to want to bring in one of our own managers. You still have your team, but you'll be answering to our manager. Is that okay? And within six months, it's stuffed you know, every time. So that's the two things that happen. Either money's taken away or money's thrown at it. Either way, money coming in, money coming out is an act of violence and it's seldom a good thing. You talk about the idea of time and space and you say that time is non-linear to first peoples and that for second peoples, all things have a beginning, a middle and an end. And it makes me think of like how that impacts our approach to problem solving and particularly those problems which are some of the ones you were talking about before that we we would call wicked problems problems that are so hard and complex to unpack that we place them in this wicked basket and in fact I do a weekly kind of blog post about a wicked problem but it's wicked because we're looking at it from that linear perspective it's wicked because we're we're junkies for a resolution because that's what our stories have told us. Anybody living in this in this society, and I don't care what minority cultural group you come from or what language you speak, you're still watching the same movies. You're still being sold the same structured narrative. 
we're addicted to that storyline and it's just not true. Things go around in continuous, endless cycles of renewal and change. People, things, situations are both good and bad in any given moment. That's the kind of thought experiments I was doing in the book, and it's very different from what people usually expect from a thought experiment. Tyson, I want to kind of circle back around to you and ask you, what are the things within your work that you're naturally drawn to, and and what, conversely, do you find the most challenging? I don't know, because I can see, you know, the the culture that we're in, you know, I was telling you the art of the deal thing, this whole neoliberal thing, this whole insane you know, endless permutations of identity and uh, identifying with this, identifying with that, and choosing this and choosing that. And this is who I am. I'm these consumer choices. Because I see all that, I'm quite resistant to branding. Just every time I see a brand starting to try and emerge around me or an image, a marketable image or something, like I'll deliberately sabotage it. Uh, I enjoy the liberation of being brandless. And every now and then someone tries to make that my brand, brandless my brand, and I nearly get sucked in and I go, no, <laughs> it's not that either. I enjoy just the liberation of, of just not giving a damn. But at the same time, that's, that's the thing that gives me the most trouble and that you know, terrifies me the most. A lot of people don't like that and are quite unhappy about that. Because they want to box you in? Make trouble for a fella like um. I don't know, because it kind of just, it strips away a lot of illusions, being forced into a, finding yourself trapped in a conversation with me. But also I get mine stripped away when I'm talking to someone too, because I find myself coming into their way of looking at the world as well. And I've enjoyed bits and pieces of a lifestyle lived free on a land base that, that is still basically functioning. That ruined my life. I wish I never knew that. I wish I'd never known what it could be like to be a real human being. Um, because this, this, this prison that we're all in here, this, this fucking net that we live under, it's, it's awful. It's awful. It's bleak and it's gray. And, but if I can behave like an agent in a complex adaptive system, and one of the most important things of, if you're one of those little specks in the system is to interact so freely with as many different other little specks as you can and have interactions with that and exchange just limitlessly energy resources information with those other ones and but allow that those reciprocal exchanges to transform you then i'm going to be a thing of this system now this system is sick so i'm going to be sick but at least i'm behaving you know in the right way why tyson then if you if you experienced as you say what it is to be a real human in the world why do you choose this system it's not chosen (laughs) that was taken away from me that's taken away from all of us there's maybe a handful of people in australia who get to live like that and even they're living on just a shadow of the land base that once was every single ecosystem in australia and i don't care you know people say no 20 percent of the earth's surface is still wilderness that wilderness is dying they're little islands of death surrounded by toxic bloody entropic systems so you know every now and then a tribe will come in from the amazon and everybody goes ah well they finally gave up you know with their silly indigenousness and you know struggling for harsh survival in in the jungle they finally came out came to their senses no they didn't like the the river died because it was poisoned upstream their system that still looks great the jungle looks beautiful people take photos of it oh my god untouched wilderness there is no untouched wilderness 
Everything's dying everywhere. And there's no way you can live that lifestyle anymore. And then if you do, it is illegal. You're squatting. You haven't checked in with Centrelink. You haven't checked in with your employer. You know, you're AWOL and you will be arrested. You know, they will come and put out your fire. This is an illegal fire. Or you have to pay a fine. Oh, you don't have any money? Well, in another month, we'll come back and we'll arrest you for non-payment of fines. And then, you know, a month later, oh, I don't know, a couple of years later, we'll let you out on parole. And, but, and a condition of your parole will be that you can't drink. And we'll just throw you out homeless into a city miles, thousands of miles from your home. And then you've got to find your way back. But then you find yourself sheltering in the park with the only people you can shelter with, is, which is homeless people. And then you find yourself taking a drink. And then they go, oh, you violated your parole. You go back to jail. My brother went back to jail yesterday because he had a drink and that violated the conditions of his parole. And now we're all, you know, struggling to try and move things around and make sure, you know, people who need to be cared for are going to be cared for, decide who's going to live where, everything's got to shuffle around. It's a big disruption, those things. That's the system we live in. I was lucky enough to get, you know, a little bit of the last possible shadow of what it is to be human and to be able to live that for a while. For a few years here and there throughout my life, I was able to live that. That's gone. That's gone. And, you know, you can't cling to it. It's got to be, um, you've got to carry through, you know, the stories that need to be carried through that are, go- that are going to be helpful, which is most of them. But then you also need to make the new stories and to share and build and allow the emergence of the new stories with everybody. We can't get our land returned to us. That's never going to happen in this system. But what we can start doing is returning people to the land, all people. Human beings need to be returned to their habitat. They need to have a habitat around them or they're all going to die and everything's going to die. So I think that'll be the big exodus and the big emergence that will happen because everybody's feeling the same genetic alarm, biological frustration signal going off at the core of their being right now. So Tyson... Is there someone that you can think of that has been a a significant influence on your thinking around your place in the world and doing good through that? Everybody I've ever spoken to. I love listening to libertarians. I like flat earthers. Everybody, children, incarcerated people, radical feminists. I really love listening to like, but, you know, but everybody, everybody, because everybody's got, um, everybody's got good knowledge. You know, and you've got to allow that to come in. But all of it, the good and the bad, and you've got to let it change you. That doesn't mean get radicalised. I'm not about to suddenly start going, let's make Australia great again. It doesn't mean take on their doctrines and their dogma unfiltered. But it's just allow their experience of the world to change you, to change your experience of the world. My next question for you is um, a a philosophical question, and it's one that I ask everyone that comes on here. Uh, It's by a philosopher called Kwame Apaya, and it's what do you think the greatest challenge of our time is? And it's something that future generations will look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. See previous answers. Well, that's what I thought you were going to (laughs) say. (laughs) Yeah. And essentially this whole conversation is really centered around that question, isn't it? Yeah. Basically it's, it's emergence. It's the question of emergence. 
And that probably leads into my next question is if you could tell the world something in, in one sentence and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? Already did it. Um, yeah, never wrestle a pig. Yeah. <laughs> you both get covered in shit and the pig likes it. Yeah. Just like, ah, oh, put it on a post-it note, stick it up in the top left corner of your screen. Tyson, where's your favourite place on earth? Eglip. It's just a beach. And what is it about it that makes it your favourite? It's just that you can go there right now. You can go there and you can dig yams, you can dig turtle eggs still right now. Um, or you can knock a pig that's been eating both of those things and it'll have really good fat on it that will be delicious. Or you could just be lazy and you walk down just with your spear, like uh, just after dawn when you can see clear in the water. And at that time there will be hundreds of stingrays and hundreds of crabs and you can just go. And then that, that is everybody's food for the rest of the day and the rest of that night. And then you just camp up under the trees and, you know, make a fire when you're hungry and cook those things up and that's it. Tyson, are you reading any books at the moment? Uh, not good ones. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> the books I'm reading. Oh, I know one of them. It's um, Sherry Tepper. She's a, an eco-feminist speculative fiction writer. She's about 100 years old and, and she writes surprisingly good sex scenes. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, she, she's just, it's just a real, always a really good yarn. And I'm reading um, uh, The Song of Maven Many Shaped right now. Okay. Um, but I mostly <laughs> like to read just trash and that I don't even remember the title or the author. And it's just, it's just something to try and put me to sleep at, right, at night. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. Okay, my two favorites. I've recently been on both of them which is like a peak experience awesome. in my life. Like I never <laughs> thought I would ever get to talk to someone who even knew these people, let alone be on their show. So Douglas Rushkoff, he does Team Human, and Jim Rutt does the Jim Rutt Show. They're both America, but I've had the, the US launch over there, and somehow I managed to get on both of their shows. And now I can just die happy. I'm good now. I've achieved everything I want to achieve. <laughs> um, I didn't even want to achieve that. Didn't even, that was beyond my wildest dreams. Do you have another book in you? Are you writing another book? Oh, I've got another one to do by September. I haven't really planned it out yet. I haven't started writing it yet. Um, but I, I sort of contractually, I need to get it done sometime in the next couple of months. Um, yeah, you got to get to work on that yeah. one. <laughs> So hopefully I'll be able to get some time off work. Well, thank you so much for your time. I have loved talking with you. I could probably talk with you for much longer about lots of different things, but this has been amazing. It has. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.